This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 171, and I'm interviewing Michelle Auerbach, author of Resilience, the life-changing skill of story. We talk about how you can use stories to heal trauma, help others become more resilient, and change our culture. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 171. First, I want to give a shout out to Jenna Ray, who left this awesome review, if it wasn't for Summer's podcast, I would have never been introduced to intuitive eating and haze. I'm so thankful for all the information and resources she provides in these podcasts. I always look forward to new episodes. Thank you so much, Jenna. That was so kind of you. You can leave a review by going to iTunes, click ratings and reviews, click to leave a review and fill in a great review. You can also help me and this show by subscribing to it. And you can do that via whatever podcast platform you use, you use, whether that is Spotify or Stitcher or Apple podcasts, or any of the other ones out there, including YouTube, because all the episodes are on YouTube as well. And if you haven't already done so, definitely grab the free 10-Day Body Confidence Makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. Michelle Auerbach is today's guest, and she solves problems and creates change through story across diverse contexts. She works with businesses on change management, leadership, and creativity through story. She works with communities on creating social good, connection, and working across difference through story. She does anti-racism work and works with the LBGTQIA, in fact, activist community with story as the touch point. And she coaches and teaches individuals through workshops, trainings, and one-on-one exercises explorations. She writes for the New York Times, the London Guardian, and is the author of three books, including Resilience, the Life Saving Skill of Story, Alice Modern, and The Third Kind of Horse. And she can be found at michelleauerbach.com. This is a really cool conversation because it changed my point of view, uh, just, or actually I wouldn't say changed, but broadened my point of view and perspective on how we can use stories to heal, how I can use that in my work, how I can use that in this podcast to help you heal, and how we can help others who may have 
more biased or different opinions than ours, how to help them to see a different perspective aside from just pushing facts and figures on them. Uh, and so I got a lot out of reading Michelle's book and, and chatting with her today. And I think you're going to enjoy it too, because it's just like, it's something we haven't really talked about on here, at least not for many, many episodes. And I think it's, it's a really cool tool for healing using stories. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's get started. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to talk about uh, your book and just the life-changing skill of story, as you call it, and how it relates to, um, you know, just like how we show up in the world and how we interact with others and how we understand others and how we help to change systems and things like that. So this is going to be really cool, very different than things that we've talked about on here uh, in a while. I'm ready. Yeah. So what inspired you to write Resilience, the life-changing skill of story? Well, so I, I wrote my dissertation on storytelling as a trauma-sensitive technology and tool for change in individuals and in communities and in organizations. And so it's all been in my brain for a long time that that something magic happens when we use story that helps us calm our bodies down. It helps us be more present. It helps us develop empathy, all that stuff. And then the COVID crisis came along and a publisher, Tim Ward from Changemakers Press, had this idea that they would publish 10 books on resilience in 40 days, which if you know anything about the publishing industry is actually, frankly, impossible. Um, usually you get a contract for a book, you give them the book sometime in the next, oh, you know, two years, and then they, they get the book out sometime in the next two years. <laughs> And we did all of that in 40 days from the moment I signed the contract. So Tim Tim wanted to make sure that things got out into the world that would help people right away to cope with what was going on. So that was the inspiration. I wrote a book proposal and, and I realized that I wanted to take all this research that I had done and all these amazing interviews with storytellers all over the world who are not writers, but practitioners in their own way and turn it into something that was a lot more fun to read than ap academic research. <laughs> right. Yeah. And because uh, it's interesting, like when you, when, you know, when I was reading what you said about your dissertation and then I, when I was reading the book, I was like, Oh no, you actually make it like really <laughs> easy to understand. <laughs> like, I don't know why I, when I, when I, when you, when you, um, had told me that it was, you know, in your dissertation, I thought, oh wow, this is going to be like really academic, but, um, it's super, super accessible and relevant. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, you know, just before, uh, we get to, you know, how to use story as a tool, like what is a story? Okay. So I've thought a lot about this over the years. A story is any exchange of information that both has a speaker and a listener. And those, those folks can be separated over time, right? Like we're actually doing storytelling practice right now and we're doing it between ourselves and then between you and all the people who listen to your podcast. And there's a little time delay there. You know, it could be, it could be when the podcast comes out or it could be a year later that somebody plays it, but they're there and they're present right? To some degree in our hearts right now. And, and we're present in theirs when they hear it. And then there's a very specific thing that happens in story that doesn't happen, say in a lecture or, you know, if you're, if you're getting information on how to, you know, there's a speaker and a listener, if you're actually trying to teach somebody how to install zoom on their computer, but there's no magic in it, right? It's, it's, it's a little bit boring. 
And the magic that happens in there is this thing called transportability. Transportability is our ability to get out of our body and our life and our experience and into someone else's. And in story, we transport people through a very simple three-part process where we create a world that they can step into. We show what the difficulty is in that world. I call it troublemaking, but what the trouble is that happens in that world and how we resolve it. And that arc of story impacts our bodies and our brains and our hearts in very specific ways that make it different from any other kind of communication. So you need a speaker, a listener, and the three-part story process, and that's what makes it story. Mm-hmm. And so the three parts to the story, like as you say in your book, is what's going on, what I did about it, and what happened. Right. And like, does that, do you feel like maybe it's just perfectionism here? I think a lot of people would sort of think like, well, it's not really worthy of being told. It's not profound or it's not completed yet. What are your thoughts on that? Wow. I have a lot of thoughts on that. So first of all, story is an empathy exercise and then perfection is like the enemy of empathy. So I try to tell people right away, whatever the story is that really speaks to you or really speaks to your listener is the right one and is good enough and it's fine. And if you try to perfect it, chances are you'll kill it (laughs) because either you'll turn out sounding like some 19th century novel where like you over describe everything and every blade of grass and all the colors that are in the sky and and then people people are skimming (laughs) all of a sudden. So they don't want to hear you. Or, or you get frozen, you know, you actually create your own internal little trauma experience and freeze yourself up. So I think story is actually imperfect because people are imperfect and our hearts are imperfect and we fail a lot at communication, but somehow on some deeper level, we succeed and we manage to capture each other's attention and imagination. And so, you know, perfectionism is really, as a writer, I can safely tell you the killer of good story. Um, you know, so that, that's part of it. And part of it is that I made it oversimplified on purpose. Like, obviously, it can be very, very complex. Starting with Aristotle and going forward through every century to the present, people have looked at why this works and tried to capture it. So Aristotle described this thing that that he called catharsis, where a story follows a certain trajectory, and we step into that, and we feel it, and when we feel it, it's like it's happening to us. So he, he actually caught that, you know, before, before there was any technology to measure it. And then a bunch of theorists over time have gotten more and more and more and more and more complex about what they think a story is. And, you know, I've read all of that stuff, obviously, and I can safely tell you that it doesn't really interest me that much that like there's there's the 49 types of story and the 67 kinds of plot and there's a whole group of people out there who are tracing story plots through downloading things that are on the internet and seeing what happens in the plot and it's all great like looking back at stuff you've already done but when you're going to try to tell something what you really want to know you're doing is keeping people interested in giving them something being of service in some way and the three-part story plot is all you need really to do that you don't, you don't need more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that really resonant with me as someone who uh, wants to weave, you know, story into whether it's like social media posts or um, emails I write, and not necessarily like all my stories, but those of my clients, those of the people who come on my podcast, and to 
think about it in that way was really helpful to just sort of think like, okay, it's, you know, it's what's going on, what I did about it and what happened. Yeah. And very wonky people back you up on that. There's a project at Yale called the Cultural Cognition Project, and they're interested in how people share science information and understand science information. And what they've discovered, which is not going to be a surprise to anybody who's say ever talked about climate change people don't do well with science information. Like We're bad at it. We have all these biases. We ha- we think we know things that aren't really true. We don't care about the right stuff, right? We're terrible at it. And so what they discovered was that the only way to break through those biases, individual biases, and, and then also biases between people who held very different beliefs was to use story and to use a very similar model to, to what I described. There's this there's this, um, there's a chart, there's a graph, there's stuff, but it, but it's, it's, it's equally simple. And what they discovered was you get, you get around a lot of the cultural biases and the, the thinking cognition biases that we have by using story. And so it just works. And, and they, they were great about saying that, like, we don't know why, and we don't care. It just works. Yeah. I, you know, circle back to that and talk about how, you know, we can use that with, uh, you know, conversations about race, like, or, or, you know, there's just such a divide on so many different subjects and, and, um, things going on in our culture. And, uh, so I'd love to know how to use that. But before we do that, I just, I want to talk about, you know, as it relates to your, your, dissertation and 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 how to use it as a tool for healing and specifically for for healing trauma because you write all the skills we need to be resilient in a crisis we learn through story so can you talk a little bit more uh, more about that sure so trauma I'm a big definition person so tell me if I'm over defining things for you but Trauma is, is an event or an experience that we have that surprises us. We don't, we aren't able to control it. It feels life threatening, right? And, and it impacts everybody differently. So you and I could go through an, a, a very similar experience. And because of past history, our own feelings about it, the, just the minute things that happen differently to us in that situation, say it's a plane crash or COVID or, you know, a, a fight for, for racial justice, right? That we could be going through those experiences and one of us could feel it was a traumatic event and the other one couldn't. And that we, we wouldn't even really be able to explain to each other why that was. But, but trauma exists out there as something that then impacts everything you do. It impacts your ability to connect to people. It impacts your ability to be creative and thought, and thoughtful. It impacts your ability to continue to learn things. And, and it's something that we all need to work through. Um, a really brilliant psychologist that I follow said, you know, if anybody in this culture makes it um, to, to being an adult with no trauma in their life, I'd be very surprised. You know, and obviously it is very unevenly distributed across society. Trauma is manifest much more strongly in communities that experience systemic oppression and injustice in, in communities where healthcare and other legal services are in general used against you as opposed to for you, right? So trauma isn't distributed evenly. But what happens is you need some way to get around the ways that your system naturally and probably healthily deals with trauma by walling things off. And storytelling allows us to do that. It allows us to experience someone else's experience 
in our bodies before we do it in our brains, which sounds weird because we're talking and you think it's going in your brain. But I can tell you from all the neuroscience around story, it's not actually happening for you in your brain. It's happening for you in your body and that and your body is sending messages up your vagus nerve and into your brain. So there's a, a really good book called My Grandmother's Hands. Yes. Yes. So, and in that book, there's a lot of talk about the vagal nerve, the vagus nerve and, and all the information that your body sends to your brain that way. And story falls right into that category. So if you're experiencing trauma and you, you are using storytelling to listen and talk about it, you're not over intellectualizing. You're not necessarily, you're going into the story with spelunking tools. Like if the, if the story is a cave, right, you have all the tools with story to keep it organized, safe, predictable, controllable, and, and therefore not re-traumatizing yourself, not actually creating a situation where it gets worse. So, so being a storyteller gives you all those tools because if you use the three part story thing and you focus on detail and you, you know, you answer some of the questions that I talk about in my book, you, you have an organized and structured foundation. So I've worked with folks who've lived through natural disasters and created a storytelling process for communities that have lived through natural disasters. And by creating questions that people can answer and systems, basically what's in the book that, that people can use, they can go back there in a safe way. And if you're the listener, you get to experience it in a way that builds empathy in you. And empathy breaks down a lot of the, the natural negative impacts of trauma. So because empathy naturally in, increases the you know, DHEA in our brain and oxytocin and all of these things that are positive, somewhat soothing hormonal responses. And we get that through story. And so we're able to build resilience that way. So what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it kind of, it works, the healing works both ways for the speaker and the listener. Like it's, yes. yeah, okay. Oh, very cool. Very good. And so it's actually having a physiological impact? Like, is that what your research yeah. shows? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, it's not even, yeah, that's what the research, so the research on storytelling says that it has a physiological impact on us in all kinds of fascinating ways. And in my book, I interview this really cool neuroscientist from Canada who is very much a curmudgeon and, and debunks a lot of things that are out there about story. And he, he, tells, he tells a great story about how, you know, if you at, attach a neuroscience word to anything, it actually just makes it sound more true. Yes, so. I, I, yes, you said, and then the study shows that people believe, like people will believe things if you just use... Just like Throw the word amygdala on it, and it's suddenly true, right? <laughs> yes. So I'm going to try to avoid that, although I did discover from talking to him that I am uh, maybe a, a user of what he called story porn. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> so, or what was it, like, like neuro porn or something? <laughs> yes. yeah, where he, just, he said, you know, it's not necessarily – because, you know, and his, his analogy was not that there's anything particularly wrong with pornography, but it's definitely not actually having sex, right? Right. <laughs> it's a totally different experience. So – he basically what he he says and which which i very much agree with is that information given in story hits you in your body so if and you we, we know this from watching movies if you've ever been on the edge of your seat and you're sweating during a chase scene in a movie and then you think this isn't actually happening i, I i'm not actually in the scene like i'm in a movie theater with a thing of popcorn right but you feel it somatically 
So that that happens, and all, and we, and it happens whether you're reading, talking, or watching. They've done research in all kinds of ways, and and you you actually have the same response because your your brain is actually when it takes in sensory information, doesn't categorize it as happening right now or not happening right now, just takes it in. So if I described a really good meal to you, your mouth would water if it happened to be something that appealed to you. And so that sensor, your brain is saying, get prepared to eat the food that actually we both know isn't in the room. Yes. <laughs> so that's one way that it happens. Another thing that happens is this really miraculous thing called transportability where, and there's been research on people have varying levels of it, but we can leave our bodies basically and go somewhere else when we're listening to a story and, and you are less aware of your own surroundings and the surroundings being described to you are more real to you than where you are right now. And people have actually reported after finishing a book or finishing a movie or finishing a story that, that those things linger as real in their brains so they can still hear the voices of the characters. And that's a great thing when you think about it, because if you're going to deal with a traumatic event and you want to reprogram your brain, you have something that actually lasts better than data. And if you happen to combine data and story, now you've got something that deeply moves things into, into your memory. And then there's a third kind of research by a guy by the name of Dr. Daniel Siegel, and he writes about attachment theory. But what he says is that as a he studied parenting and parent-child attachment, and he discovered that parents that had traumatic childhoods, that had not, that was not the variable that made them good or bad parents, and not the variable that allowed them to create strong attachment with their kids. The variable was what they did with the story about their childhoods. And so people who created a story that allowed the experiences they'd had to inform them to be better parents or that made it meaningful to them in some way. They just, they had a story. This happened and I learned something or this happened and I became more empathic because of it. Those people created stronger attachment with, with their kids and their families. Yeah. Wow. And so in other words, like that's sort of where the resilience comes from within ourselves by telling our story is, is to sort of be able to like inform ourselves to be more, you know, confident or empathetic or um, compassionate. Is that, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, exactly. So what are some practical ways to use these tools, like to share our stories? So right now, the thing that that's, that I've been talking about to people a lot, which I think will probably resonate with your listeners, is that we're all facing this topic of race and race justice and like what's going on in the world and how, how do I educate myself, learn about this, like, what do I do, right? And the very best thing I would say to do is to read people's stories who are different than you, right? To go out and search out movies and TV shows and books, whatever you like to do that makes you happy anyway, go do that and, and, and find sources that are just different from you so that you can watch and read. And there's a lot of cool resources out there right now that are being provided by media companies who get this. So, so there's, there's movies that are being offered for free. I just found out one of my all time favorite food writers. Um, there's an episode, a PBS episode where they interview him. That's, that's available for free. I'm Geechee and Gullah cooking in, in the South, you know, where you can actually hear his story and go find whatever the thing is that really appeals to you. And just immerse yourself in it because that immersion into story gives you empathy. It gives you knowledge. It gives you a platform from which to start to understand other people's experience. 
And so that's, that's receptive, right? Being a story listener to build those capacities, being a storyteller, you know, there's, there are a lot of things that you can do to start to, to frame who you are in the world. And one of the things I write about in the book is this concept of recipe stories and food as a story. And I interview both a chef in Ghana, who is an amazing, amazing woman who worked for a long time in, in development in Africa. And she, you know, has very fancy graduate degree went, you know, and was working with the UN in Africa and realized that she wasn't making any headway. And so she quit. She went to cooking school. She went to culinary school at the Culinary Institute of America. She went back to Ghana and she opened a restaurant. And she's using food to tell cultural historical stories of her community. And suddenly people are utterly fascinated and learning and changing the way they eat to go back to more traditional food ways that are more sustainable in the community. And all she did was start talking about food. So if food is something that interests you, you can look into the recipes that you love and where they come from and the things that came out of your family and what they mean to you. And that that can really help you develop yourself as a storyteller and you've got a really concrete thing to talk about. So I've been that's what I've been obsessed with recently is like that that concept that we can go we can go into just into into the most obvious things, food, movies. And, and actually build skill. Yeah, because like my head immediately goes to like, oh, we share our traumas, but like that is a big leap to go from not sharing any stories to sharing your trauma, right? Um, so that 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 is such a better way of thinking about it is to start with something that is like really safe, really easy, and also like you know just we all have kind of a connection to food in some way. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's just a lot of, one of the women that I interviewed in the book who I just love has a podcast called Black Women Stitch. And, uh, I mean, her Instagram feed is Black Women Stitch. Her podcast is, uh, oh my gosh, so something. It'll come to me. But she uses talking about sewing to tell stories. And she's utterly brilliant about it because she has all these interactions with companies and, and other podcasters and people who sew. And from those stories, naturally, she's, she's a Black Lives Matter activist. And naturally, things just come up where she can actually talk about bodies and protests and what it's like to be African-American and female. She's a college professor, you know, in a university setting. And it just all naturally flows out of talking about sewing. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. And so like, I'm trying to apply this to, you know, like most of the listeners that are listening have, you know, struggled with their bodies and, um, and the relationship with food. So, uh, uh, you know, and I know you do a lot of work in like the fat activist or not, I don't know if you do work in there, but you're, you know, immersed in the fat activist community. Like how, how can storytelling be used to facilitate, a greater acceptance of our bodies and ourselves, or even just to like relieve or become more resilient to kind of the messaging that we're receiving in this world. So you do it all the time, right? I follow you on every possible medium that you do. <laughs> and I see, I see it happen all the time. And it's an interesting combination of that we all know the data, right? Like once you start immersing yourself in this world, you know, diets don't work. The data, the data bears that out, right? And yet there's so much acculturation over time that tells us that it, it would be beneficial to try anyway. Yes, yes. <laughs> right? And you think, like, you can literally, I, my poor best friend just went through this, right? That she's, she's my age, she's going through menopause, and she's a beautiful, curvy, lovely 
you know, medium-sized human. And she went to the doctor and they gave her a body mass test and they did all these things. And she called me crying. Like I just wanted my hormone levels checked. Right. And I had, and, and I could, and I, and they put me on a, a diet actually telling me I was overweight and then I had to do all these things before I got the hormone test. And I actually had to say to her, hold on, back up. Cause I was like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And she, she was so caught up in that experience, that really traumatic experience for her. And I had to say, take two steps back. And I told, retold her some stories from our shared life, right? Of people we know and things that we've seen and ways that we learned that diets don't work like in a really clear way. And after telling her the stories, she was like, I think I better go find a different doctor. And I was like, yes, you should. But had I just told her, stop, diets don't work, blah, blah, blah. She was still in the cycle of trying to process this awful thing that had happened to her, which was invasive, right? Oppressive, stigmatizing, took away, took away her agency, all of these things. And she was feeling it, you know, and, and, we had to share stories back and forth to back up the knowledge that we already had. So that works. And it also works when you're beginning to learn about all of this information that like you can tell people that the, the sort of beauty ideal that we're held to is a white supremacist ideal, but it doesn't register until you, you see a picture or hear a story where you go, Oh shoot. Right. That's really true. Right. And, and then you, you feel horrified, you know, and I, 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 I read, um, the book Fearing the Black Body recently, and I realized that all the stories that she told in that book helped to bring that very clear data that we know to be true into a somatic real experience for me. Right. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And so you much do it, sense. Right. You do it. You do it naturally. A lot of the people that, that work in this field do it really naturally, eliciting stories from their listeners, eliciting stories from the, you know, the world around them, couching a lot of the data in humorous stories about your own experience. You know, if you ever read Reagan Chastain's blog, that's a place where you can get all this information, but it's always couched in story. Yes. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you start to think about the, you know, the things that you most enjoy listening to or the things that have had the biggest impact on you. They are so often rooted in story. Right. And I think that the, if you want like the, the ninja, is that a good example? Like what well, my, my, um, both my husband and my daughter are studying martial arts right now. Oh, so cool. in my brain, but like there are these certain moves that combine power and grace, you know, and that when you do them, my daughter who is, you know, not is, is a girl can like take down her seven, six foot six jujitsu instructor. Right. And, and she's a young girl and she can like take someone down and it, cause it combines grace and power. And I think if you can have like sociological and medical data combined with storytelling, you actually are unstoppable. Wow. That's really cool. That's a really good quote right there. <laughs> um, so that to me, and, and so then like, you know, even just the process of like sharing your own story, like if you wanted to share your own story in order to, to heal, like, is that something that could even be done? I know you kind of mentioned there's always a listener, but is that something that could even be done just via like journaling or something like that? Like, does it have the same effect? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there is some really interesting research about that on um, very small stress levels and very 
large traumatic levels. And the there was a there was a research study done on journaling with folks who were unemployed. Um, and this was about seven years ago. And what they found was that the people who were taught journaling as they were doing job search, their perceived happiness in their life was higher. And the time between when they started looking for a job and when they found a job was shorter than the people who, who weren't in the journaling group, but they were in the control group. So they found a job faster and they, their experience was incredibly more pleasant just from journaling in a very simple way about their experience. Mm-hmm. So and interesting. There's also research about, and I think my my um, my stepmom just sent me an article from the Washington Post yesterday about this, that they're creating journaling protocols specifically for trauma, and that 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 these are proving to be scientifically pretty supported in terms of what they do. So on the on the sort of more. I don't even know what to call it, what we would call stress level all the way to the trauma level. It it really is useful to capture those things. And I think the reason that this happens is that there's a self-narration capacity that you have when you're journaling that allows you to have a perspective on yourself. You step out of yourself in the same way that, say, people who teach certain kinds of meditation want you to develop a self that's the observer Writers and journalers and storytellers already have an observing self they know how to switch into. And so suddenly you're not the person suffering, you're the person suffering and the observer who can provide comfort and context for yourself. Yes. Interesting. That's so cool. And so like, I, I'm going to jump over to just how we can use stories to, you know, start to kind of change our culture and, be better allies to marginalized individuals. And so, you know, how, how can we use story to do that? So I'm going to speak from the point of view of a pretty privileged white person here, because that, that is, that is my life experience. Um, although I am Jewish and that, that gives, that gives a whole like twist to it. It does not make me not white or not privileged. So that, that, For me, I know that it is my job to educate myself. And I also know that part B of it's your job to educate yourself is please don't make people in marginalized communities spend time educating you when they really could be doing stuff to support and take care of themselves. So story gives us the capacity to do that. One of the courses I've taught uses Spike Lee's documentary series, which is, which is available, I think on Netflix, that talks about the Katrina event and then the crisis that came after it for poor black communities in, in Louisiana. And I wanted to know what that experience was like when I was building disaster storytelling process. But I also knew that I didn't really want to bother anybody who'd been through that experience because they, they had enough to deal with and they certainly didn't need to deal with me asking them for free consulting. So I used Spike Lee's movie. I read books, right? I delved into these things so that I could get the, the experience of what it was like. So that's really useful. And then the second thing you're doing by buying books or watching movies that are made by people from communities that don't always get the publishing industry support or the movie industry support is you are in fact giving your pay, you know, you're putting your money where your mouth is and saying, I, I value this enough to buy the book or watch the movie, give you, right? So that's fabulous. And then, you know, as we start to talk through how to reach people who are different, story helps us break through the barriers that intellectually sometimes prevent us from understanding difference. So there's a study that that was done on 
pain perception that was called the Just Like Me study. And what they did basically, they, they shocked you with a very mild electrical shock, but it doesn't feel good. And then they showed you a series of people experiencing the same thing you just experienced. Although I think in the study, the other people weren't really experiencing it. They, you just thought they were. But they showed you people who were in your family and you felt exactly what they felt. You felt the pain they felt. And then they showed you people who shared affiliation with you. They were the same race, the same religion, the same, they moved out. It was first race, then religion. And I think they did, they did people who voted for the same party that you did. And then they started to show you people that were different. And as you ex- perceived people as more different from you, your ability to physically feel their pain diminished. So we got to break through that. That's what we're fighting against. You're distant enough from me that I can't even identify with you. And stories make you, they transport you into that person's experience, right? There's a, there's a great line in a Zora Neale Hurston book called Their Eyes Were Watching God, where she says, you got to go there to know there. And that's what story does. It takes you into somebody else's experience and it breaks down that just like me barrier. So you become more capable of being an ally, an agitator, whatever the word is that you want to use for for supporting folks in marginalized communities that are not your marginalized community or not your experience. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And, you know, there's just so, and I love the part that you mentioned about like supporting their work, you know, like, and not just receiving things for, for free. I think that, you know, we have to look at ways that we can pay for the knowledge and the stories that we are learning about from others. And if you really want to be an activist, a friend of mine just told me the story last night that I thought was the most brilliant thing I'd ever heard. Her somewhat racist mother-in-law loves to read. And so every time a birthday, a holiday comes around, she always gives her mother-in-law books in genres she likes to read that are exclusively written by people of color. That's fantastic. So she's buying a book the person's reading it who who trusts her book recommendations in a genre she likes, being educated, and like there's everything about that is brilliant. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> That's really, really smart. Yes, I wish I'd come up with it, but I did not. But it that I mean, if you want to take an activist stance, start buying other people books that you think they should read. Novels, you know, mystery novels. There are mysteries written by by, you know, all kinds of different folks. There are Romance novels. I went to the Romance Writers Association of America because a friend of mine is a romance novelist who writes like social justice romance. And there are, I mean, whatever group you fell into that you wanted to find a romance novel in, there's social justice, African-American lesbian romance novels, if that's what you would like. Wow. You can really find some wonderful stuff out there in storytelling that helps to support people's Already, you know, it just supports people's education while simultaneously feeding them the stuff they love. Mm -hmm. And to try and buy it from black owned bookstores, too. Yeah, absolutely. Or at social justice bookstores, there's an amazing one in Toronto. There's an amazing social justice bookstore that that, that supports all sorts of folks. So you can actually seek out the online book retailer of your choice who is part of a marginalized community and buy your books there. What's that one? Do you know what the one in Toronto is called? I will remember it before we're done. (laughs) (laughs) I can totally Google it. It's fine. I mean, that's, you can put it in the show notes. I just, no, well, I'm just curious. That's where I, that's where I lived for many, many years. But, uh, so I'd be, I'd be curious to know. So I can suggest it to other people in Toronto that I'm still connected with. Anyway, so the, so kind of on the heels of that, um, one of the things I really wanted to touch on with you is just, you know, 
we have such a divide in our country. And I know you kind of mentioned like, okay, buying these books for people in your family who are still, who still hold uh, racist or, or homophobic or, you know, anti-fat beliefs. How can we use, is there other, other ways to use story to kind of reach across the divide, as you said, and help others kind of get over that, the biases that they have? Yes. There are. It's by the way, it's called Another Story Bookstore. That's the name of it. Oh, cool. Okay, good. <laughs> so the the yes, and I think we've all been in the situation. Like I don't know that the, the, we've all been in the situation of being in a conversation or at a dinner party or at a work event, and you realize that the beliefs you hold are not the beliefs that the person that is talking to you holds. <laughs> and if you go head to head with them you lose. And I've had this happen. I I love, I want to just say this. If she's listening, I adore my mother-in-law. We could not come from more different political backgrounds. She's a very genteel Southern lady from, you know, who grew up in the fifties and holds some beliefs I don't agree with. And when we argue about the ideas, I lose. And you know, my stepkids are always looking at me like, I can't believe you're going down this road again. You are so stupid. But when we talk to each other about the stories of our experiences in life, she's able to see things she wouldn't be able to see any other way. So I can talk to her about growing up Jewish and dating somebody in high school and not being and having their parents say they couldn't date me anymore because the country club they belonged to did not allow Jews or blacks to come into the country club and they didn't want this person to date someone that they couldn't bring to the country club. Right. Which is like there's so many levels of bad in this story. Like, let's just talk about privilege and whatever. But but the bottom line was Jews and blacks in 1984 were not allowed in this building. And when I tell her how hurt I was, because this was somebody I actually had very strong feelings for at the time and that we that there would be this divide created because I wasn't allowed in a building. She thinks it's horrifying. Oh, honey, I don't want that to ever happen to you. Right. And and so the story breaks through her bias because she's developed empathy for the character. That's me. There's trouble, right? That's the middle part of the story. What happened? There's trouble. And that, that begins to focus her attention. And then the outcome of it was kind of heartbreaking. And so what, what, what did I do about it? Well, I got broken up with and I was heartbroken and I had to deal with that. And so just by telling her those stories, I see the shift that happens in her. And when she tells me the stories about what it was like to grow up where she grew up, I don't agree with her about the things that that has created in her life, but I see how she could have gotten there. Right. But don't ever talk to her about like voting rights because that's, that's a bad conversation. (laughs) Right. Right. And like, is that something that you feel because there's so many, you know, you would think about like social media and having different views, like, oh my goodness, you know, when, like, if you see somebody post something on social media that you're just like, this is awful, or, you know, I don't agree with this, you know, it, do you feel like this is a useful tool in our, in the realm of social media? Or do you feel like this is really just something that needs to be when you're having conversations with other people? That's an interesting question. I would say it's useful in the realm of social media because it breaks down the social media perfection vanity thing that goes on where people post things on social media and they feel kind of bulletproof when they do it. 
And if you're posting story, that just simply can't be possible. And so it creates a different kind of interaction that then you can get if you just repost someone else's heinous thing that you didn't realize was put out by Breitbart News. And then somebody else comes back to you and like tells you, you know, facts about them. So, yeah, so I think it would work in social media also. And I would say that, that um, Kelly Deals, who is an amazing feminist social media guru. Yes. And she, she talks a lot about double down on your passion and use your social media to talk about your passion and, and that that engages people on a level that has nothing to do with facts and figures, but can make real change. Mm, yes. Yeah. And she always weaves really good stories into her emails. Yes. And she, I interviewed her for my book and she shows up several places because I just think that kind of storytelling is brilliant. Yeah. So good. Well, it's a great book and has really good stories in it and just is, is very practical and useful, I think. I hope so. That was the goal. The goal was that to make it real and concrete and useful and that people could pick it up and, you know, read it and, and use something on their family and their family wouldn't even notice. And, and you could actually improve communication or build empathy and people wouldn't even know what you were doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So good. It, it, yeah. It makes me, it makes me think and, and just wonder more and, and, you know, want to tap into, to that tool, just whether it's even more on this podcast or, um, within my clients and obviously just in the world. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find more of you, Michelle? So you can go to my website, which is michelleauerbach.com. And I'm assuming that you will have my name because spelling it is a pain in the neck. <laughs> yes. Um, and on that website, you can sign up for my, um, I do an email newsletter once a week that has a recipe story. It has some excerpts that didn't make it into the book, um, of interviews that I did. Cause the people that I interviewed in the book come from all over the world, all walks of life, brilliant, brilliant storytellers. And so I just wanted to be able to, to get people more information because the book itself is super short. So if you read that, you get to, to know what I'm listening to, what I'm following, what I'm reading, but also you get a recipe. And I think this week, in honor of the Supreme Court's decision in the U.S. to support trans and LGBTQ rights, I have recipes from the Supreme Court cookbook. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband's chocolate chip cookie recipe. So <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah. So you can do that. And, and the book, you can buy the book, which is called Resilience, the Life-Saving Skill of Story, anywhere you buy books. My local bookstore is called the Boulder Bookstore. If you want to buy it from a local bookstore that you'll know has it, you can find them online or else any, any venue where you normally buy books. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. This was great. Thank you for having me. Rock on. There were so many great ways to use stories in this episode, and I learned so much just about how powerful that process can be and, you know, just like stuff that I didn't know before. So I always love when I learn so many things in an episode. Anyways, hopefully you learned a bunch of stuff too, and you're inspired to read some more diverse stories and tell your stories and use stories as a way to um, connect with others and offer people different perspectives than the ones that they may hold so close. 
closely. You can find all the links that were mentioned, everything that we talked about, there were a bunch of them, uh, in the show notes for this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 171. And in case you don't want to type in the show notes into your phone, you know, you can always just look at the description for the episode and there's a live link there now because I just figured that out five years later. Thanks to whoever told me that I could do that. <laughs> Got any other tips for me? Feel free to share. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this one. I will talk to you soon. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.